Welcome to the Focus and Chill podcast, where we discuss sustainable productivity and habit formation while avoiding the allure of hustle culture. Every episode, we interview guests who have got a solid habit and productivity game. We're your hosts, Joey. Hi. And Jeremy. He's Jeremy. Joey's a published author. I'm self-published, though. Has a background in psychology. Not registered, though. Has a deep interest in humans. Only some of humans. And a strong interest in habits and connections specifically. Mm, that's true. And Jeremy is a software developer with ADHD. And when he's not trying to come up with ways to stop himself burning rice, he enjoys doing a three-hour morning routine and surprising colleagues by doing sets of push-ups during meetings to keep the energy high. The Focus and Chill podcast is brought to you by Focus Bear, a habit and productivity app that makes healthy habits and deep work the path of least resistance. If you have a tendency to check emails or scroll through Instagram first thing in the morning, but long to develop a meditation and exercise habit first thing, Focus Bear can help you. The app blocks distractions on all your devices and guides you through your habits one at a time. Throughout the day, Focus Bear assists you to stay in deep work by blocking websites and apps that are unrelated to your chosen focus mode. Life's not all about work though. You'll be prompted to take regular breaks to rest your eyes and stretch your muscles. At the end of the day, Focus Bear helps you switch off. Work-related apps get hidden so you can unwind and sleep well. Check out the app by going to focusbear.io. Welcome to episode number six of the Focus and Chill podcast. We thought we'd take a bit of a breather and recap some of the learnings we took out of the first five episodes that we've had so far. So Joey and I are going to ask each other what our reflections were on some of the themes in terms of the morning routines that our guests employed, their evening routines, and also their productivity tactics. So I'm going to begin by asking Joey about what did you see when people were talking about their morning routines? Were there themes that you noticed? Or things perhaps that they didn't do that you thought were interesting. Yeah, I think I think the biggest theme was that they started their day fairly proactively rather than reactively. So there'd be a like a sense of I gotta pay myself first before I, I pay other people, which meant not going to reactive sources like their inbox or uh like social media. Basically no any any anything that's incoming, they seem to do that after they would do their what seemed to be fundamentals. So I remember Vaughn saying something along the lines of, um, I think I think it was journaling, was it? Um, and uh, Trudy wasn't journaling so much, but I think she would um, get some some time out walking or get get the um, get the blood flowing by spending some time outside, if I remember correctly. And um, yeah, I. I'd, I'd remember, I think Monique had something similar as well, and that, that seemed to to ring the truest. It could be confirmation bias, because that's, that's the way I like to work as well. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's what stuck out to me. How about you? Yeah, I agree. And one thing I noticed was they all got up quite early, almost ridiculously early. I think Vaughn was saying he gets up at 4.30am, and Shruti, because she has children, it seemed like in order to pay herself first, almost the... Were you going along the lines of the richest person in Babylon there? That that wealth fable, maybe it can be a, a time fable as well, that if you don't make time for yourself first thing in the morning, you're never going to get that time back throughout the day. And for Shruti, because she has children, it, it seemed like she needs to almost beat them up. She needs to wake up quite early in order to have time 
to meditate and do any the other morning habits that she had. Yeah. And I remember you saying before there was something along the lines of like having habits can be a bit of a luxury as well. Like, could you explore, could you explain that idea a bit more? Yeah, I've been thinking about that because my wife and I are planning to have children in the future. And I'm thinking that my current morning routine is almost a bit self-indulgent. I'm trying to imagine how I would even manage one hour in the morning when we'd have a, a young child. That probably is not going to happen. So I, I feel privileged to have the enough vacant space in my life that I can do it at the moment. And I guess in the future, it's going to be a case of really paring it down and figuring out which of the activities in my morning routine really move the needle and which of them are just nice to do. And if I one day had a lot of time, then I might do them, but it wouldn't be something that I would do every day. Have you had thoughts about that yourself? Do you feel like there's anything self-indulgent or luxurious in your current morning routine? I think I think I live an entire life of self-indulgence. <laughs> <laughs> well, my parents will probably tell you that. But uh, I, I was, um, yeah, like, what's that? What's that quote? I'm probably going to butcher it, but something along the lines of, um, "Nothing gets your priorities in order more than a person walking through your door with a shotgun or something." <laughs> in a similar way, I think nothing gets your uh, priorities in order more than um, a kid arriving into the world that you got to take care of. So, yeah, it's. Um, Hopefully the kid doesn't have a shotgun, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like attitude towards parenthood. Yeah, yeah, it's a, I'm sure it's a big surprise to you, but uh, <laughs> yeah, like um, I think I think uh, one of the one of the key things about having good habits is to actually develop a meta habit of if you miss one day, make sure you get back on it the next day. Like try not to have, try not to miss more than one or two days unless you're intending on doing it. So you might say, okay, well, I'm going on holidays for a week. I intend to put this on pause for a week, but like just in like normal, like peacetime, I'm not sure. Wait, is, does, that, does that mean holidays and war? I'm not sure. But uh, in, 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 in normal time where, where you're not going on holidays, like being very intentional about saying, okay, well, I don't want to, I don't want to slip on my habits for more than two days in a row or three days or whatever it is. Being very clear that, yeah, you're human, you're not a machine, you're going to slip up every once in a while. But yeah, I guess drawing a, a fairly hard line in the sand about, okay, well, if I slip up twice in a row, what's going to be the consequences here? Am I going to miss out on ice cream or video games or some? Some delightful, or both. You, you or, uh, some... You're not allowed to continue your holiday. Yeah, that's it. Not allowed to continue your holiday. <laughs> it's like that. Th it's like that threat. My parents never told this to me. I always see this in movies, but it's just like, if you kids keep playing up, I'm going to turn this car right around. And... <laughs> <laughs> not, not that my parents knew that holidays with them was punishment. It wasn't punishment. Like I, I loved, I loved holidays with my parents. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> how what was your why why were your holidays like war for you no i guess i, I kind of answered that did i <laughs> independently <laughs> yeah. uh yeah like um so yeah i think i think um if, if it's not too meta i think having that that broader habit of like how you're going to treat your habits and saying okay i'm not gonna i'm not gonna slip up a day or i'm not gonna slip up um sorry i'm not gonna slip up more than two days in a row. So it, it allows you to basically say, okay, well, all right, I messed up, but I, I can get back on it. And um, I'm, I'm a human, I'm not a machine. And this is, this is a level of tolerance I'm going to build for myself. Could even be a case of uh, maybe you're starting out 
and maybe you want to do like 10 push-ups every day and but you you say like i'm going from not exercising at all to trying to do 10 push-ups every day and that's that's quite even though 10 push-ups or let's let's just even say one push-up right i'm going to do one push-up every day but you don't necessarily have an anchor habit to go to so that's going to be very difficult even though like maybe doing one push-up is trivial allowing yourself that that tolerance of maybe okay well if I if I do this twice a week, I'd like to do it every day. But if I do this twice a week in the first week, then that's a really good week. And then, as you get more comfortable with that with that goal, maybe you ramp you raise the stakes a bit, and you say, okay, well, I want to do this four times a week, and you keep going until you say, okay, I want to do this six times a week, and maybe that's the ceiling you hit, or maybe you say, like, I'm going to go to a week, and if I miss it, then there's certain consequences that that make me feel like the, the the sting of missing it and that goes into the whole gamification idea which we i think i think the last couple of first few episodes we, we were saying like we could do a whole episode on that so mm. maybe this is it who knows <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, I'm interested about the psychology of the the punishment versus the reward side of it in bj fogg's book tiny habits he talks about the way that humans are pretty wired for beating themselves up and he thinks it's important for people to focus more on celebrating their successes rather than beating themselves up for their failures. So I'm curious about, say you're going on holiday, and I guess I, I've got a recent example of that where I, I went to a, a ski resort for a month and I wasn't in my normal environment and it was a bit hard for me to do my habits. For example, I like to do hip and yoga, but I didn't really have a space that I could do that. There were a few times where I was trying to do my yoga and then I was staying in a bunk room and people would walk in while I'm doing yoga and nearly knock me over because the door would open and I'm trying to do a downward dog. <laughs> Made it in some ways quite challenging to do the full routine. And what I was resorting to there was more of a, a minimum viable routine where I, I would do the most critical habits and I might scope it down a little bit and the, the key thing there is, I guess, making it realistic that in that kind of environment, it is much harder to do the, the full routine, but not seeing that as a failure, seeing that as a success that even in a, a hostile wartime environment, we were still able to do some of the core parts of the morning routine and still get some of the benefits. BJ Fogg talks about celebrating, I think he calls it shine, that after you do something, let's say you do your one push-up, then he encourages people to do a little dance or be a bit like Leighton Hewitt, be like, come on, and really make the, the habit feel ingrained. He argues that, you know, there's that idea that it takes 21 days to form a habit. He argues that it's heavily dependent on your emotional relationship with that activity that if it feels like a, a chore and, and something that you don't really want to do, then it will take a lot longer to do it. Whereas if you really enjoy the doing the one push-up, you get a real buzz out of doing that, then it, it might form quite quickly. Do you have any thoughts about that play between negative and positive psychology? Yeah, I think I think it can it can play into personal differences as well, because I think there's I can't remember where I heard this distinction. I think it might have been even a Tony Robbins, a Tony Robbins course or something that said there's like you got to identify whether you're a move towards 
person or a um, moving away person. So a move towards person is someone that moves towards pleasure, highly motivated towards rewards. And a, a move away person is someone that is highly motivated by like penalties, punishments, moving away from those things. And so, yeah, I, I think I am, I think I'd like to be, I'd like to consider myself a, like a move towards rewards type of person. But I think ultimately I'm probably more of a um, avoid, avoid pain type person. And I think once, once I have, well, I say once I've come to peace with it, I still, I think I'm still trying to come to peace with it. But uh, I think having that knowledge about yourself really helps as well. Because for example, if I try to motivate myself by saying, oh, like if you get this done, then you can have an ice cream. Instead, if I frame it as, oh, like if you don't get this done, then you miss out on your after dinner ice cream. Then, yeah, I think I think that that frame is so much more powerful for me. Like the the latter frame of missing out is so much more powerful for me than the than the former like positive frame of like you'll get an ice cream. So yeah, that's 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 my take on it. I'm probably the same, but pretty sure it's a relatively standard human temperament that loss aversion is more powerful than gain attraction. I know the the term for the opposite of loss aversion, but they always say that you're gonna if you, if some if you lose money after you got it, you probably are gonna feel worse for having lost it than when how good you felt when you got it in the first place. But I wonder about because we both used stick in the past, which is a a habit formation tool where if you don't do a habit, then you have a, a punishment in the form of having money donated to potentially an anti charity. For example, I was I had it set up that if I didn't do my meditation every day, then I would donate five dollars to an unnameable political candidate. I'm not going to show my political stripes at this point, and that was quite motivating for me initially. But I found it after a while when I was actually consistent with meditation already, it, it felt a bit superfluous and it felt quite annoying almost that why do I have to check in in this way when I'm already doing it well and I don't want to have to think about that person every time I'm doing my meditation. Yeah, it make, makes a lot of sense. And also, I'm not sure if I was on that on that stick run because I, I had, uh, I remember I had a, well, I still have that um, same gamification program where I um, don't necessarily have to donate to unfavorable political um, candidates to, to keep myself motivated. But the, the motivation came from from costing me time playing solo video games, multiplayer video games, watching TV, uh, those kind of indulgences. So, um, mm. but yeah, like I think, I think, I think what you're saying with having like you, you got the, you're on the meditation train and then you still have to see this stick all the time. I think the danger that you get is the extrinsic rewards starting to overpower the intrinsic rewards. Yeah, and I was going to bring that up too. I was going to ask yeah. about ice cream as well. Yeah, totally. So I guess for, for people that aren't really sure what we're talking about, there's this, there's this really wonderful psychology study that it, it's, it's from way back. So who knows? Uh, maybe, maybe it hasn't been replicated much like the Walter Michel um, marshmallow, marshmallow test. But um, it's, what, what I remember from it is that kid, there were the kids in a classroom and there were both given the activity of drawing and half of the classroom was basically given given 
extrinsic rewards, which was in, in the form of a gold star. And then the other half of the classroom wasn't given any extrinsic rewards. And so this, this behavior carried on for some time. And then I think, I, I can't remember the time period, let's say it was maybe a week or something of, of drawing. And the experimenter then took away the extrinsic reward from the first group. So now you've got a, a case where you got half of the class is drawing, were previously given extrinsic rewards of a gold star whenever they did a drawing, but now they're not given it. And the other half um, have just been drawing, carrying on as usual. And they found that the first group that were initially given a gold star actually started drawing less when that extrinsic reward was removed. Whereas the, whereas the people, the, the kids that were in the second group and they were just drawing, they, they probably connected, well, I don't want to, actually, I don't want to infer this, but what, what you saw is that they, they were, the, the drawing still continued in pretty much a steady state. And so I guess the, what I draw from that is that the extrinsic rewards can sometimes pull away the joys from the intrinsic. And it's a tricky balance because I think extrinsic rewards can be useful in that they provide a good like little jackpot or launch pad in which to, to spark a good habit, but then having to rely on them can be a little bit problematic. Yeah, and I think it has been well replicated. I think that phenomenon is called motivation crowding theory. There's a book called Punished by Rewards where the author Alfie Cohen talks about that in great detail that giving gold stars or even outside the child context, giving employees bonuses actually makes them less engaged exactly the way you described it, that not just withdrawing, but say with their work, that if you if you pay a programmer that say if they write more lines of code, then you'll pay them more money, then they'll write garbage code. And it completely the incentive distorts behavior in a in a way that's not that favorable. But I have a feeling that there is some nuance to it that, like you said, there probably is a, a place for some degree of extrinsic rewards, but just not the only activity. The, the challenge is probably, say, with a habit, if there's something that you genuinely dislike doing, then that's not really going to be able to be a solid habit. And it probably comes down to, say, with exercise, that I don't really like going to the gym. I find that environment uncomfortable the big hulky guys, the, the beefcakes in there, I, I feel a bit intimidated and I don't know how to use the equipment. So I find the whole experience that it almost fills me with a little bit of dread going in there. Whereas doing a hit workout at home or going for a run, I really enjoy that. And so for two of those activities, the going for the run and following along to a, a hit video in my own, the comfort of my own house with no one watching me, there's intrinsic motivation there that I, I actually enjoy the activity. Whereas going to the gym, you probably almost have to pay me to go. Yeah, totally. And once again, I think there's there's another layer on top of that, right? Like because with going to the gym, there's an added level of friction that you gotta you gotta like get dressed for the gym. Like you might not care about the clothes you're necessarily wearing if you're if you're at home doing your hit workout. But uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta possibly depending on where the gym is, you might have to actually get into your car and then drive and then and then go there and then. Yeah, like there's there's maybe many points of friction there. Uh, then again, you could use that in your favor and basically say like, okay, well, I'm just going to go to the gym, and if I don't feel like working out, then fair play, and I'll just come home. 
And in, in that cases, in, in those cases, because you've overcome those little bits of friction along the way, I think you'll end up finding that you'll probably go there and you'll, and you'll, you probably will work out because you might have this cognitive dissonance of like, and well, I'm here, so I'm going to just may as well it's do like it. cost fallacy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Using them to your advantage, some cost fallacy and cognitive dissonance. So it's like, yeah, it's um one of those interesting things of, I think, finding just the right amount of friction to do it. Because I, I know sometimes um, when, when I was early in my exercising discipline, because I work out at home quite a lot, uh, well, I, I only work out at home these days, there is, there is a tendency to maybe just like put on my workout gear, which takes all of a couple of minutes and then, and then just basically say like, okay, well, I'm just going to do one, one burpee because I'm not really feeling it, but you know, it's better than nothing. Right. And so because the friction's so low, I can just, just show up and just do one thing, which is like a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big stretch to call like one set of burpees exercise, but I guess it, you start where you start. Right. But like, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think there might be a, a sweet spot between having the frictionless habit or a low friction habit, which is something that James Clear talks about quite a lot to perhaps putting a little bit of friction in so that you get to a certain point, it's difficult to roll back a little bit and then you use the momentum that you built by overcoming those little friction points to, to propel yourself and into a bit more effort. Yeah, that makes sense. Feeling like you're a gambler and you need to you need to keep on a winning streak doing more burpees if you've already gone all the way say to that a special spot in your house and it feels like a lot of effort to go back to your room now yeah that's it and and also for anyone anyone curious about the wonders of doing burpees they are excellent low cost like unless your ceiling is very low and you can't you can't really um jump and you don't you don't even have to jump that high i think you find that when you I don't know about you, but like my, the jump in my burpees, well, actually, do, should we explain what a burpee is before? I before think like, you better demonstrate, shall we? <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing a lot of friction right now. I'm, I'm not, I'm not wearing my burpee clothes, but it's, it's, um, if you imagine starting from a standing position, you do a jump and then descend into a squat and then do a push up and then get back into a squat and then and repeat. So that's one, that's one burpee. And so they are so intensive with not needing any, like you don't need any equipment to do it. And yeah, they, they are really good for your cardio and possibly some, I think there's probably some strength, strength aspects to it as well. Right, Jess? Yeah, I'd say so. You're lucky because you live on the ground floor so you can do it without disturbing your neighbors. I find it hard because I, the material, my, my flooring is hardwood floorboards. And if I jump, it feels like I'm going to break the floorboards. So instead, what I've been doing is I've got a backpack and I put my dumbbells into the backpack and use it as a bit like a weighted vest so that just doing a normal push-up is a lot harder. But I'm looking forward to being in a space where I can actually do more of the plyometric style bodyweight exercises because I, I agree, they make a huge difference to the amount of exertion that you do compared to just say doing push-ups or doing squats without any jumping i'm actually i'm actually not on the ground floor i have i have people below me it's a it's a it's a bit of a it i know my building's a bit tricky because like you when you come in through the front yeah like there's you, you come in straight into my apartment but there are actually people below me uh so do you worry about I, i'm not sure if you 
I, th- I thought we talked about this before. Like, I was I was feeling a bit self conscious that, like, when I do my burpees, I thought like the the people below me might hear me jumping. Do Do you remember that? On no, yeah, not so much. I, I I can imagine feeling nervousness. I think it's justified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, burpees burpees are great. I think we went off on a bit of a tangent on that, didn't we? How do we get yeah, there? Maybe we we're can about jump onto our second thing, which was talking about the evening routine that our guests employed. Are there any elements of the evening routines that you can recall? Not immediately. I think there was some discipline in in the wind down routines, which I think is is very useful. I think I think it can be very easy to fall in the trap of, oh well, I've I've done my work and so I'm just going to allow my evening to unfold as it is. And I think I think once again, there's a bit of a balance here in that if you have an overly regimented evening, then yeah, you're probably not going to feel very well, you're probably not going to look forward to clocking off work and, and getting into your evening routine. But on the other hand, I think if you end up just doing whatever self-indulgent activity your lizard brain draws you to, then I think you might have like a get like a overdose of blue light and might not be able to sleep, for example. So, yeah, I think I think there's a balance in there. And I, I guess like what I heard from most of the guests is like a, a fairly good balance of those things. I remember Monique saying that she she tries to intentionally do nothing which i think is different from from i guess that that pattern that might give you an overdose of blue light because she intentionally i remember her saying she intentionally turns off pretty much all screens and just has like that yellow mosquito light i think which sounded sounded really uh next level intentional for setting the ambience for your sleep which is very admirable very inspirational so but yeah, like in that environment, like if you, I feel like if you set up the guardrails around your environment, basically saying like, well, I'm going to turn off all these dopamine inducing things like my devices and blue light and, and whatnot. And then within that, within those guardrails, just allowing you, allowing yourself to do whatever you like, then I think that's probably a pretty good way of, of maybe scratching both itches, scratching both the itches of like um, setting setting up yourself for a, a good sleep because your brain isn't as stimulated, but also allowing yourself to just relax and and be playful. Yeah, it was interesting. Say the Vaughn had a very hard cut off at around three p.m. and then, like you were saying, he, he then he had some TV shows that he liked to watch and he'd go for a, a walk. And I found that interesting. The that there was not a huge amount of structure in the evening, but the rest of his day was very structured. Maybe that's a, a good thing that there's a, a certain amount of structure that a human being can tolerate and maybe some degree of chaos and just doing whatever you feel like is helpful. I know that Trudy talked about that as well in terms of that she had some activities that she would schedule as part of her off time, but she also she liked to do puzzles and do other things with her family when she had basically no real constraints and no requirements for what she would do. That's something I don't really have in my life. I don't have a a great deal of unstructured time. Even my evenings are very structured. Maybe that's something I should experiment with. I liked the the circadian lighting approach that Monique had as well. I'm actually planning to do that in the house that I'm going to be moving into soon, having... There's another, not the Philips Hue, but there's another product where essentially the lights will automatically change in their intensity as it gets closer to sunset. And then 
when it's actually dark, it's more of the red and yellow hue rather than the bluey white hue. I don't know whether it will actually help, but I'm keen to give it a go because I do find that, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily wake me up, but I know that on the Huberman Lab podcast, he talks about how even a short amount of white light in the middle of the night is enough to screw up your melatonin. I'm optimistic that it might help having more mainly red and yellow lights. Hopefully no mosquitoes though. Yeah, yeah. That that system that Andrew Huberman talks about is pretty diabolical. Just quickly, it's the idea that early in the day you are if if I'm rem- if I'm understanding it correctly, earlier in the day you are less sensitive to the like basically light. Um, it it is good for it is good for setting your circadian rhythms, but like the bottom line is you've got to get a lot of it to try to basically try and set the mark. As you go through the day, that you reach what's called the circadian dead zone, where like basically it doesn't matter how much light you have, it's it's not really going to set your circadian rhythm. And then you've got this point, which is I think it's like something like four hours before and after what's known as your temperature minimum. Anyway, like lots of, lots of technical stuff. But um, he was saying that like towards the, like the end of the day slash night, you start becoming more sensitive to, to light uh, and that disrupting your, your sleep, which is just like, just given like sleep is like such an important part of our lives and it's cheap and it's pleasurable and it's, and it's just so good for you. I wonder like if evolutionarily, like how that mechanism came into play because it it just seems set up to to really disrupt our sleep. I remember one of the episodes he talked about how the desire to have an afternoon sleep may be an evolutionary adaptation to the equatorial climate where it gets very hot in the middle of the day and there could be a, a danger of dehydration. But in terms of practical application of it, I, I guess that my takeaway is go for a walk outside in the morning around sunrise and also go for a walk around sunset and then after that walk minimize any artificial lighting i don't know that i necessarily do that i i don't find huge issues with having blue light disrupting me and preventing me from actually falling asleep but maybe it affects sleep quality i need to install flux again on my phone i had it on my old phone or twilight one of those apps where it changes the screen to be more red hued yeah I, I tend to use the the blue light blockers like i actually got um like that yeah yeah they, they look they look like just these orange these orange shades and yeah i don't use them religiously but i find that if i'm if i am working on something on my screen late at night and there's and there's a lot of white background to it so like something that i can't put a dark theme over I find that it's it's actually quite nice. Um, I actually actually I don't wear them over my specs. I um just swap the specs out for these, and yeah, I find my my vision fatigue is is a lot less as well. So it's um pretty interesting. I also like um Huberman. Uh, he was mentioning in his yeah I think it was his sleep toolbox episode talking about how sometimes he goes into convenience stores wearing sunglasses at night because uh. Right, if he has to go into the convenience store at night, he wears sunglasses because the the lighting in those places is is so harsh and can disrupt your your rhythms so badly because they because of the intensity of the light. So um, yeah, I'm just uh, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to think to myself, do I 
do I have the the social courage to go into into the coals of the woolies just wearing like a like my blue light blockers? I'll, I'll work myself up to it. <laughs> I think they look kind of cool. People might think you're going to a rave. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe I'll try it out. Might be a cool social experiment. Might be a good conversation starter. Speaking of experiments, any new takeaways that you might experiment with in terms of productivity hacks that our guests employed? I couldn't think of any off the top of my head because I guess I was doing a lot of the things that they were that they were talking about. Do do you have some? Some might come off the top of my head um, later you on. Were, but do, do you, you were wanting to talk about the Eisenhower matrix? Oh uh, yeah, so like a lot, a lot of our guests mentioned the Eisenhower matrix, and so I think I've been using something similar, except the axes that I have is impact and effort. So I think the Eisenhower matrix they talk about urgency and importance. Is that that is that right? Hmm. That those are the axes. So yeah, like I basically draw up a similar quadrant, and for me, it's it's um, impact versus effort. So yeah, so you basically have some some tasks that are low effort high impact those are the ones you probably want to to clear the the soonest and then you have things that are high effort high impact and you probably want to look at those um next and then you got stuff that is low impact high effort and um sorry that's probably what you want to look at last in the middle is probably the, the stuff that is that is um low imp sorry where was that help me out just it's uh the low impact or low low effort low impact low low effort low impact that's the one yeah yeah thank you so i um yeah i, I don't think i'm necessarily going to adopt the eisenhower matrix i don't think but it might be it might be a useful variation for for people that might have tried the eisenhower matrix and it didn't stick for them i'm not exactly sure what that matrix that i mentioned is called but i i've just been using it for a little while it makes sense because it almost adds another dimension of your ability to do the work as well because there'll be times where you might be feeling really flat and it's going to be hard to summon a great degree of effort whereas other times you've got heaps of energy and you're going to be able to smash out the high effort tasks so it, it reminds me of i guess the the difference between time management and energy management that we we do need to factor that in as well that even though in theory there might be a really high importance task that is really urgent, but you just you just had COVID and you, you're barely able to get out of bed and it might not be possible to work on something like that. So your matrix probably combines in terms of the impact. You could almost, if you did a, a principal component analysis, you could distill importance and urgency down into impact almost. Yeah, that yeah, possibly. Superior. And then you were saying that you were already doing a lot of the tactics. Do you want to just summarize the ones that the guests were doing that you use as well? Maybe Pomodoro Timer sounds like one that a few people mentioned. Yeah, yeah, the Pomodoro Timer is is very helpful, I think. Or, um, yeah, having a Pomodoro block, which is, I guess, different people have different levels of discipline around it. I I think my level of discipline is probably has probably slackened a little bit. In the in the last couple of years, I'd really like to go back to in in 2018. Whenever I'd hit play on the Pomodoro timer, it meant you concentrate only on the task. You don't get up to go to the bathroom. You don't get up to uh, get a glass of water. You don't get up to to change the music. Oh, you don't you don't change the music. If the music isn't playing yet, you don't have music for the Pomodoro. And so that that type of 
low flexibility rules was very good for inducing focus because there was no choice basically it's like okay well get it done or dehydrate basically <laughs> mm. how about you jess uh, one thing i learned recently about the pomodoro technique i think there's an aspect people don't realize that you, you do your block of work and then what you're actually meant to do in the five minute or 10 minute break is you're meant to actually go and eat a tomato that's how it got its name did you know that no i didn't know i didn't know that See, I think you've been doing it wrong all the time. Uh, I think the tomato is definitely going to hold all the secrets to productivity. Yeah, because that's the cure to your dehydration problem there as well. Ah, but like you can, you can eat the tomato only after the task is done. So if I've dehydrated in the meantime, then unless someone's going to like smush a tomato over my face, I'm I'm pretty much stuffed, and I live alone, so. Yeah, I guess I'm not gonna have a Pomodoro helper, but maybe that's maybe that's like a a whole niche market. Maybe we can <laughs> maybe we can like uh, get get people that are willing to be Pomodoro helpers. They just stand by your desk and like if you if if you collapse, they'll they'll smush a tomato on your face. Yeah. In, in fact, I think like I'd like to do that. I think I'd like to do that actually. What do the smushing or have it smushing? Oh yeah, I'd like to do the smushing. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to do the working. I just do the smushing. <laughs> yeah. That, that was the fabrication, by the way. That's not really how Pomodoro works. But Oh, you said it with so much authority. <laughs> I really believed you. Are we, are we going to keep that disclaimer in? Yeah, uh, let's, let, let, let's keep it in. Uh, otherwise, we'll just be misleading the audience. Oh, you'll be yeah. misleading the audience. I, I had no part in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, how about we, we finish off with a question or talking about flashcards because that's one thing that I didn't hear guests talk about and it's part of both of our morning routines and it's something that I, I probably picked up from you. I, I had installed Anki prior to meeting you but I don't think I used it with, with much fervor. So I'd be keen to hear, maybe you can tell the guests about the various decks that you have and how you approach doing flashcards and spaced repetition. Yeah, sure thing. So I currently use Anki Droid. So I'm on I'm on an Android operating system. So for for my mobile device, and so I use Anki Droid. I've found that to be pretty good. I use Anki for Windows as well because um that's that the operating system that I use. They work pretty well together. In terms of decks that I use, I have a drawing deck. So that's basically for drawing tips and um, principles, things that I want to keep in in my working memory. I have one for music as well, which is stuff for music theory. Also, how to use different types of music software, like uh, music sequences and like different. Uh, if you ever looked at a at a control panel for like a music sequence and seen like the millions of knobs, it's basically like okay, so like what what is a sense control for and what is like a sub synth control for and all these things. So yeah, that's that's been pretty helpful. I also have a survival deck which is full of like first aid stuff it's a pretty wide-ranging deck actually it's like first aid stuff how to how to survive an active shooter situation how to uh track um certain things from the art of tracking and yeah lots of different things and then i've got a a jokes deck (laughs) so like basically like a, a whole bunch of jokes that are that I like to remember, and basically, I, I haven't come across a joke that I don't want to remember. So basically, all people, people like 
I don't really have the concept of a bad joke. People will say, tell, tell me a bad joke. I just hear them say, tell me a joke. And so... Oh, it's a joke, Joey. <laughs> uh, well, I can't remember the jokes that I, I, I said in the, in, the first, uh, in the first episode. So um, let me see, let me see. Did I, did I do the doctor, doctor? Can I play the violin after the operation? Have I said that yeah. one? Ah, damn. Jeez. Well, the, the thing about my jokes deck is I only have two flashcards, so it's just... <laughs> okay. I've, I've got one. Go for one, it. One wind turbine said to another one, what type of music do you like? The other one said, I'm a big metal fan. <laughs> yes. Uh, Soon I'll have three cards in my jokes deck. <laughs> So you've got, it sounds like, about five different decks. I'm curious about your thoughts on interleaving, because I was reading an article about how to structure your Yankee decks, and the author was arguing that if you have all these cards that are dedicated to a certain category in a separate deck, then it makes it too easy to remember, and it's not like the real world. And I've been thinking about that, because I've got, so I've got a, a Chinese deck where I've got only Chinese cards, and then I've got also a survival deck, I've got a wisdom deck, a programming deck. But I've started thinking about, I've sometimes accidentally put, say, Chinese into my wisdom deck, and I notice how much harder it is for me to recall, because my brain maybe isn't primed for it. Do you have any thoughts about, is it beneficial to just smush them all together like a tomato into your, into the Anki face? <laughs> the Anki face, I like that. I think... Yeah, like I've heard of the benefits of interleaving as well. And it's not something I practice. Like, I guess I try I try to re review my cards like for 10 minutes every day. And so that might not cover everything. But it it's usually goes like jokes, music, survival, wisdom. I don't think I mentioned my wisdom deck. And then in the last one minute of that, of the... In the last one minute of those ten minutes, I'll switch to my drawing deck. So it's not it's not strictly interleaved, but I guess there is a mixture of cards that I come across in that ten minutes. But like also, I don't think it provides any. I don't think it would actually provide any of the benefits of interleaving because you like I guess you're switching between the decks, and with that switching comes that like your your brain is going into the different switches. So I don't think it's actually interleaving in in any sense of the word really i i think one of the things that is difficult with interleaving is like let's say let's say you've got a survival deck which is i i consider those fairly high priority cards they're things that if i if i'm due for review i want to make sure that i don't have a big backlog of those and drawing and yeah like let's say drawing for example i don't think it will matter too much if i don't remember like what the value of like an occlusion shadow is compared to like reflected light or what have you. And so I think if I were to interleave them and I had a whole bunch of reviews to to get through, I think it would be I think I'd always be worried that like where are the where are the high priority cards, for example, the survival the survival cards in this in this big interleave deck. That's that's the only concern I'd have. But I guess that's just the greater incentive to stay on top of your reviews right <laughs> yeah it makes me think maybe i'll do something like that where it's almost high priority cards and then more like trivia and i'll focus on doing the high priority deck first and maybe it's a combination of things but it's not yeah it, it, i still would do that first as opposed to 
I've got a few cards in my wisdom de- deck which are basically designed to help me do well if there's ever a trivial pursuit game that I'm involved in, but they're not going to help me if there's an active shooter situation or something like that. But hopefully that never happens to either of us. But on that note, I think we're going to shoot off. So we will, <laughs> we will join you next week. We're going to have another guest episode and we'll be interrogating them about their morning and evening routine while still continuing to hone our own habits and our own productivity. Have a great week, everyone. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Focus and Chill podcast. To listen to other episodes, jump onto podcast.focusbear.io. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or you know someone who'd be a good fit, email us at team at focusbear.io. Otherwise, stay focused, stay chilled, and peace out.